0: This is a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a R film, criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Alexandra Helen Nicholas and our guest host, Mike Bartlett, is back with us in the cave this evening. Hello to both of you. Good Hello. Evening.
1: Welcome back, Mike.
0: Thank you. What a delight like to be back so quickly. Yeah, well, I'm glad we could make that work. Uh, mm. Yes, thanks for being so agreeable. Oh, I try,
1: I try. <laughs> this is starting off very pleasantly. Yes. I'd like to thank you both. <laughs> nobody's screaming, nobody's weeping. It's going well. still me? time. Yeah, we,
0: we haven't talked about our opinions on films yet. <laughs> look, on tonight's show, we're going to be looking at Una, starring Rooney, Mara and Ben Mendelsohn, and we thought we'd also take a look at the original 1971 version of The Beguiled, Starring Clint Eastwood But we're going to start off with A Quiet Passion This is the latest film by English auteur Terence Davies Whose previous film Sunset Song Was discussed by us here on Plato's Cave less than a year ago A Quiet Passion is a biopic about the 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson Who tragically only achieved acclaim and fame after her death When the vast majority of her poems were finally published unedited The film begins with Dickinson in her school years before shifting to her adult years where she is played by Cynthia Nixon. The rest of the cast includes Jennifer Earle as her sister and Keith Carradine as her father. So are either of you big Emily Dickinson people?
1: I think I was in my younger sort of uni days when I was sort of into gothic clothing and sylvia plath i think emily dickinson and virginia Woolf were sort of in-laws of that kind of
0: she's she's yeah, yeah. one of those writers where if you win the right the particular scene at uni
1: yeah she had a certain cultural yeah. capital um and i i do really like her poetry but i have to confess it, it's been <laughs> it's been some time since i've sort of sat down with a volume of emily dickinson poetry and had a good mm. old read um, but certainly, you know they're they're bangers. They're the
2: <laughs> you you, they're reckon, just, you reckon her poems are okay? I reckon <laughs>
1: they, they they go off.
2: Thumbs up for the poems. <laughs>
0: Because I, I came to this completely blind. I, yeah, me She's too. one of these people, yeah, uh, to my shame, I'm aware of her significance, but for whatever reason, I just never got exposed to her writing. You, weren't,
1: I, a, you weren't a goth teenage girl, that's No, I guess not.
0: <laughs> but but I certainly, you know, I, I, I read a bit of Sylvia Plath and I read a bit mm. of Virginia Woolf, so I don't know why I never got to Emily Dickinson, but I, but I didn't, and I knew very little about her life as well. I, did, I didn't know that her actual life was quite sad, so I went into this film knowing next to nothing
2: um, are you the same, Mike? Oh yeah, likewise. I actually, it was only watching this film I realised that she wasn't Angie Dickinson, uh, which uh, would have been quite a different <laughs> it film. Actually, me that Dif- there's
1: so many people that aren't Angie. Dickinson. It's true.
2: It's true. If <laughs> <laughs> um, only more people Angie were. Dickinson
1: <laughs> playing Emily Dickinson could be. Would have been possibly good. even better than a Quiet Passion? I,
2: th- I think this film overcomes that uh, <laughs> that shortfall. But uh, You're no, I a didn't.
1: Strange person. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's only my second time here. Um, now
1: the tears start.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, so I, no, I didn't. I obviously wasn't in the right scenes in university, I guess. But uh, Or you
1: were absolutely in the right or ones. Well, perhaps I was. <laughs> how right. you look at it.
2: Were you
0: reading On the Road and um, were you reading Kerouac and Burroughs? And I don't know what I was doing at university. but uh, no, I, Catcher I, in the Rye is missed the one that. we all have to read. It. Yeah. No, yeah. I, uh, I, <laughs>
2: the gender not.
1: lines are, are drawn.
2: Yeah, I was just lurking in the cafe, really.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, this is turning into like a, a mass regression <laughs> i just got
2: this image of all these art students
0: Reading their novels And Mike just standing there in the corner of the cafe Looking strangely at everybody
2: That's pretty, that's pretty much, that's right
1: <laughs> You're painting a real This
2: picture. is uncanny Alright, Well, what do, we, what do we make of this? Because uh,
0: I know Alex, you and I are very much on side With Terence Davies as a rule I, I don't think I've ever spoken to you about him No Mike, Are you a fan of...
2: Yeah, I'm, look, I'm not entirely sure uh, exactly mm. what I, I sort of think of his style. I mean, I think this film reminded me um, of Witt Stillman's uh, stuff, but not so much actually love and friendship, which I really enjoyed, but his sort of earlier work had had that sort of stilted, slightly stilted, um, heightened quality, and I think... Uh, it's a, yeah, that's a good comparison. The characters here sort of reminded yeah. me of characters of, uh, you know... Um, Barcelona, Barcelona and Barcelona and Metropolitan, Metropolitan and yeah. yeah, the, yeah, yeah dialogue... Exactly
1: absolutely yeah. very kind of intense I, I mean as you said Thomas I'm I'm very much the bong is packed hugely for Mr Davis for mm. me I just think he's an extraordinary filmmaker and I was a fan anyway and then last year having him out at MIF um, just seeing the man in action, like he's just a beautiful man who makes really beautiful movies and yeah. it's it's sometimes that simple. Can, can I drop um, the fact that I I, got, I hung
0: out a little bit with him we, we, we walk between cinemas because I work for MIF and one of my duties was to escort Mr Davies between venues and we just chatted, he was lovely he, he even joked at one point so about friendly. I think he said, I'm mean, in, in danger of becoming prolific and he kind of did a little <laughs> giggle because he's had two films out in the space of 18 months and normally there's years and years between mm. his films. I mean for a long time he hasn't been appreciated and he struggled to get his films made and he used to have a reputation of being a real curmudgeon and being really cranky and angry but that's the vast opposite to the man i encountered last year and i think that's because later in his life he's getting a lot of acclaim and love
1: yeah and i think retrospectively people are looking back at those earlier films and really i mean distant voices still lives is just a a, Mm. just a cracker of a movie um and i think that these the, the the kind of um the accessibility that these films are getting sort of quite wide release. Um, his more recent work means that people can go back and kind of, oh, who is this Terence Davies? Oh, look, he made a film with Gillian Armstrong, uh, Gillian Anderson, which yeah. always kind of throws people a The House a bit. of the House people of forget,
0: yeah. And Deep Blue um, Sea I adored. I think that was a stunning film. Look,
1: this was one of the big things with me watching him speak at MIF last year was him talking about um, his family and growing up in a very strong female household um with you know his mother and his sisters and being really strongly influenced by this sort of feminine presence and you really feel that in his movies. Mm. I think I thought about that a lot watching this. I thought about it a lot watching Sunset Song last year. Um there's just I mean this is a this is a filmmaker who really understands on a really almost molecular level that that feminine strength. Mm. Um and and the brutality. I think that he makes really brutal films but in a in a very it sounds strange. Really brutal films, but in a really non-violent way. Watching, this, watching A Quiet Passion, I was really struck by these moments that happen in everybody's lives. You know, we get sick and we die. Yeah. But the way that he choos- chooses to film these moments, you know, it's almost like they're not edited, there's very few edits, you know, there's very few cuts, and the intensity, that the physical closeness with which these sequences are filmed are just devastating. There's a sexual assault in Sunset Song, um, which happens slightly off-camera. Um and it's it's almost that same this sense of presence is, is Davies does presence like very few other filmmakers I think. In these, you know it's just in really strange little moments I think that mm. he really grants the 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 gravity that they deserve. Um whereas in other films they're almost like sort of token spectacles, I think that he he doesn't do that.
0: I think that's well said. And he's an impressionist filmmaker. He gives you impressions of moments. And we certainly get that in A Quiet Passion, which is it, it's not a traditional narrative. It, it is a series of sort of segments, if you like, conveying an impression of that moment in her life. And look, I've, I think I will confess I didn't connect with this one like I have with... Um, what was the last one called sunset <laughs> excuse me <laughs> yeah. I, I, I i didn't get the same connection from this and and for me maybe it was a little bit too segmented there, there were there were there were a lot of moments where i was neither content to linger in that moment nor move on i sort of wanted more from certain scenes
2: so was that the dialogue do you think the sort of you know cause i think the sort of artificial literary banter while it's so clever yeah uh it, it was quite hard to actually connect. I just felt I was standing back and watching this, uh, You had a this
0: similar reaction to me, yeah.
2: yeah. I find this really I so.
1: really interesting because I, I... I hope it's I'll, not just a gender thing. Well, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> think it's, it's never just a gender thing. Um, I When I was watching this, I was thinking, you know, whether you're really... I wonder how this film differs depending on your knowledge of Emily Dickinson. Mm. I wonder whether what you bring to this film has a, you know, I mean, of course it has to have some impact on on your experience of it. There's a moment quite early on in the film where we see uh, the actor playing the young, young Emily kind of uh, segue, I guess, into being the Cynthia Nixon...
2: Morph, even.
1: Morph, yes. That's a good... I like how you pronounce that. Say it again. Morph. Yeah, <laughs> word. That was, morph. That was yeah. cool, um, how she morphs. But she does it through, she's having her portrait taken and, of course, she's sitting there in this very... Uh, Nixon strikes the pose of the very, very famous uh, daguerreotype of Emily Dickinson and I was like I said, I haven't really thought about Emily Dickinson for quite some time and I was like shivers, you know, when she just sort of her elbow sort of out at a certain angle having this particular photo Daguerreotype. Sorry, all the photography nerds will be on the phone if I call it daguerreotype (laughs) a photograph. She's Um, really. I mean, that was that. I was hooked from that moment. Mm. I was really hooked, and I was really struck by Nixon's performance.
2: Um, I was too. She was amazing. I was Um, second and third that. Particularly, I mean, while I admired the the literary wordplay, the sort of fireworks going on between the characters, it was really when she was silent that I admired it the most. That moment where she's just given a poem to the Reverend, and she's. So keen to find out what he thinks of it, you just see this terror and that uh, the insecurity of the artist, and it plays out for about a minute just on her face, and it's just uh, that was the most powerful moment of the film for me. I, I think just it was, the, it was probably the closest I felt to really connecting with her with her character.
1: He's he's got a real knack of defamiliarising these sort of pop. Figures. Yep. So Cynthia Nixon. I've never seen Sex and the City. I didn't. I knew. I knew the name, but it was only after seeing the film that I kind of looked up. Why do I know that name? Mm. It's like, oh my, my god! But of course, it was the same thing with Julian Anderson. He he'd never seen the X Files, and even I think to yeah, some degree, he, with he has um,
0: zero knowledge of pop culture. Yeah, like so he, he, just, he, he thought, just casts these people. Who he, he thought Anderson are the right was actors. perfect for the role, yeah. he was
1: absolutely right. And I think with um, with Anderson and with uh, Cynthia Nixon. Um, and I think, to some degree, with uh, Agnes Dean from Sunset Song, he sees very much so. He yeah. sees these performers with new eyes. He doesn't have that pop cultural baggage. He doesn't see Dana Scully. Yeah. You know, he doesn't see or Miranda. Uh, there you go. I was, I got, <laughs> I was I blanking right. on her name. Well, isn't? a little done. bit
0: surprised I knew that. There you go, um, because it's so part of pop culture. Well, this mm. is but it. He it, doesn't have that. He just
1: yeah. it, it's it really and so it does have this sort of defamiliarized experience where you mm. where you really um, it's it's like a stripping back. Um, And I think as a performer, that must just be incredible, especially when you are in something as iconic as Sex and the City or The X-Files, to have a director that's never seen those films put you in, you know, these films with quite a fair whack of gravitas um, Mm. and really demanding roles, both House of Mirth and um, A Quiet Passion are really physically and emotionally demanding roles that, that both Gillian Anderson and... Cynthia Nixon play. I mean, that must be just... Well, it's certainly helped to
0: have a new lease on life yep. with the role she was offered, and I suspect we'll see the same with Nixon now because, yeah, I mean, she's so associated with Sex and the City, and it must be extraordinary for her to get this second career now because people are talking about her in reference to a quiet passion, mm. um, and that's terrific. I don't think the rest of the cast were as consistently strong. I found there was a lot of mannered performances. And Jennifer Earl just seemed to smile while crying the whole film. And and the guy who she played... She does that so well, though. That's kind of her thing, I know. But And the guy who played her brother just seemed to be <laughs> right. from another planet.
2: He's uh, I last saw him in Hamish Macbeth. He was the pot-smoking yeah. doctor <laughs> in that uh, 1990s. See, that makes sense to me. <laughs> and he worked very well there. But I, I think I couldn't quite get past that with him here.
1: You know, it's, I've it's gone blank on both of the hammy. faces of both of those characters, which right. doesn't bode well. Keith Carradine I thought was great.
0: That was um, my favourite stuff in the yeah. film was the complex relationship between her and her father. Because he's this man who's very much a moral authoritarian in terms of um, respecting the church and he is you can just see him getting so frustrated and worried that she's straying from the faith, but at the same mm. time, he has these very progressive ideas about her as a woman being able to assert herself and be independent. Mm. And that they're kind of contradictory views, but it, but underneath that is an enormous amount of love between the two of them. And that was for me the most moving, powerful part stuff stuff in this film.
2: Mm. I like that it was a, a portrait. Um, and Alex touched on this. It was a portrait of female friendship, and I really liked that. And it was it was done in a way that I I found quite affecting. Uh, this idea of female friendship really only being able it, it, to exist in the spaces between men. So, in the the gap between uh, you know they leave their father and they move in with their husband, and there's this little window in which they can be friends. Um, and that was, it was so important to Emily. And she talks about the grief when you lose a friend, when a friend gets married, and it's you know it's uh, she says it's as keenly felt as as death. Uh, but at the same time, she's aware that she actually needs to be keeping herself separate and that it's sort of beholden on the artist to be on the outside to some extent, um, which plays into, I guess, familiar um, tropes about artists needing to be solitary, You know, such as um, you know, Jane Austen, this idea that Jane Austen, if she had married as she'd intended, might have deprived us of these great works of, of literature. It's, it seems Emily's almost aware of her own myth a bit here.
1: And you can feel that Terence Davies is really relishing that i mean this mm. is a love letter i think the final mm. moments of this film is you know like there's a um, a portrait of the real emily dickinson the very famous portrait comes up and it's you know the year that she was born and the year that she died it's it's verging on corny but he gets away with it because it comes from such a beautiful sincere place i mean this is um this is f- you know, real, this is high art fanfic, you know, like he, he <laughs> loves this woman.
0: And it's very personal for him as well. Like I think, I mean, I know he he read something like six autobiographies about her apparently. He's been trying to get this film made since I think 2012 and and he has been the outcast, underappreciated artist himself for a lot of his career. So I think this is, he felt an enormous amount of affinity with with Dickinson. It's interesting, this is one of those films where, like I said, I didn't, didn't connect with it as much as his, his other films but I was very aware while watching it that's probably on me and talking about it now, has got me more excited and appreciative of it. I think this is a really, really good film that I hope to revisit when I'm ready. Maybe I'll read some of her poetry first.
1: Why not? Give it a shot. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: Una is an adaptation of Blackbird, a 2005 play by Scottish playwright David Harrower. Who who has also written the script for the film, and it's the feature film directorial debut for Benedict Andrews, who's an Australian-born theatre director. In the film, Rooney Mara plays Una Spencer, a woman in her twenties who was sexually abused when she was thirteen. The film takes place over one day when Una tracks down and confronts Ray Brooks, the man who abused her all those years ago. Ben Mendelsohn plays Ray. The majority of the action takes place at the factory where Ray works, where Una demands an explanation, and Ray attempts to defend or at least excuse his actions. So, badly <laughs> starts.
1: Times.
0: Mm. It's tricky subject matter, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I like this film a lot. Okay, um, I saw it about a fortnight ago, and it's well, it's a, it's stayed with me. Um, I keep thinking about it. Um, hmm. I think that there's a lot going on in this film, and I suspect that synopsis indicates as such, but I think um, the, the the morality in this film I think would be very easy to treat quite simplistically and I've seen films that do treat these themes quite simplistically in that they turn them into melodramas mm. in that it's moustache-twirling villains versus innocent girls in white dresses being tied to t- train tracks. Um, this film really skirts that. I think it tackles some stuff kind of head-on mm. um, in really interesting ways, but without defending anybody without looking like it's undermining anybody. I think that it, it balances it really, the, the ethics that it's dealing with, I think it balances extraordinarily well.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I only saw it recently. I'm still wrestling with it. Yeah, it's it, it, taken
1: me. It's it's like, it gets under your skin. This one, huh?
2: It's haunting, and that's yeah. yeah absolutely, I'm still thinking about it three or four weeks later. But um, yep. for me, it was, I didn't love it. It was kind of halfway there for me. It, it kind of um. It was understated and intense, and I liked that. But it, it just uh, it it kind of didn't have the theatrical intimacy I wanted, which I think it would have had as a stage play. But didn't quite have that sort of cinematic. Dynamism, I'm,
1: I was either, thinking right? about. I was actually thinking about this this question, the broader question yeah. of when people that very much have earned their stripes on the stage turn to filmmaking. I think it's always a really interesting um, shift. Mm. And when I was watching this, I was really conscious of the fact that the camera was moving a lot. Yeah, you know, he was. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like um, they it, often
0: overcompensate. It, yes. it almost
1: felt like that, yes. um, and I I liked it, but mm. I, I I think. Um I, I found out afterwards that it was uh, somebody who was more familiar with doing stage plays. Mm-hmm. And look I mean, you know, he um Benedict Andrews has done, you know, the Shakespeare and the, the you know, the big names, but he's also done um stage adaptations of people like Sarah Kane like the famously unstageable playwright Sarah Kane, who's just one of my favourite playwrights. And that, he already kind of, you know, I pack a bong for the dude just for staging Sarah Kane plays because they're so difficult to do. You know, she deliberately wrote these plays that were really virtually impossible to be staged. So I think he's really... Up for the challenge, um, but it kind of made sense to me afterward like after watching the film, it was right. like, yeah, this is a guy that's used to the stage. I, I,
0: yeah, I was heightenedly aware that yeah. mm. this was a stage show. Watching it, like even if you hadn't, if I, if I didn't know that, I would have suspected because it's very limited number of characters, very limited number of settings, and any deviation from the established setting felt very much added on. I, I think part of the problem may be in the writing, in the adaptation process, less than the directing. Um, mm. And I I must admit, I felt similar to you, Mark. I think I yearned to – I wanted to experience this as a stage show because I kept on thinking this subject matter with this cast of probably only three or four, I suspect, when it was staged – he had two main actors and maybe a couple of other actors playing the other parts. would have been incredibly intense it on stage.
2: Have. And I do feel in the middle section, he's trying to liven it up a bit. So there's a lot of jump. They sort of keep moving from room to room. And I just wanted to sit with it a bit because the performances are amazing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Mendelsohn yeah. Is, um, is really, you know, he's doing what he does best here. He's thought of as this, you know, typical bad guy um, post-Animal um, Kingdom. But what this film shows is what he really does best is to be a kind of wounded beast, you know, you get this sense that he's been kicked quite hard at some point, and as a result, he's lost any sense of of right and wrong. Um, and what I think, why this film succeeds in being complex, is that he's able to exude both vulnerability and menace. You know, I'm not sure if any other actors can do that quite as well. It allows you to believe that maybe maybe his motives were pure, even if his actions were criminal. That it that perhaps it, it hurt him to be doing this, and he was actually risked everything for him, and you actually stage where you almost want to believe him and you really want to trust in him and, which you, you, don't, and you don't want to be taken there at all. He's such a great a performer
1: because he knows exactly and I think that comes more from the performance than it does from the direction, mm. I have to say. Mm. I think that the calibre of the cast in Una, you do get the feeling that it's, it's not so much the director kind of working these subtleties as it is the actual performers themselves, yeah. knowing, especially Mendelssohn, knowing... And I think Mara, who I'm not a fan of in the slightest, but I think that she really kind of goes the other way in that, mm. that you kind of almost... Uh, at points, you almost feel that she's the villain.
2: Yes. You know, yeah, because yeah. she's
1: so angry and she's so understandably irrational in the circumstances that she finds herself in. Yeah. Um, and, and the film is... The, the the dynamic between these two performers is incredible in that you find your loyalties being twisted in ways that are very, very different from your ethics, mm. um, which I I find just a really... Wonderful experience as a as a spectator. I don't Mm. find it pleasurable, but I find it really challenging.
0: Yeah, Um, I'm really torn with what I think about this film, and it's it's an ongoing process. I'm glad I get to sort out my feelings on air now, (laughs) Um, because what really worried me was I, I just, you know, what he. <laughs> yeah, I, I took a very strong ethical stance with what he did was inexcusable. and
1: I think you meant to. Yeah, I, I he, think that that's he a was given. the
0: adult. Mm-hmm. And, and no matter what he thought or what he said, he was the adult. And he, he's gaslighting her throughout the film as Absolutely. well. And, and I've heard people saying that the film is trying to gaslight us, the audience. But then I'm conflicted with the, what use is the film if it tricks us into thinking the wrong thing? Um, and but at the, at the end of the film, I, I just felt I, I, I never got the sense that he was properly, really condemned for what he what he had done. It oh, seemed I to the, be. My, well, I, I'm working up to something. Sorry. It seemed it seemed to be saying you know, he he was sort of some tragic figure who acted on an impulse he shouldn't have. Where I think my moral outrage was. In these situations, it's so goddamn black and white. She was a child, you were an adult, no way. On the other hand, though, then I started wrestling with this idea about how our attitudes to to, to crime and punishment and, you know, do, do we accept that there is redemption for people, that if people do do their jail time, can they be integrated back into society and therefore he has done that? Does he deserve to now be hounded again? And and these are complex issues as well. Whenever we talk about criminality and, and law and punishment, mm. something I've observed over the years is traditionally the right side of politics is very much send everybody away, lock them up, send them to hell. If you do a crime, it's all over. Where the left has always been very vocal about we need to integrate people back into society and just punishing doesn't work. The big exception is sexual crime where right and left seem to completely swap. The, the, the people on the right, I'm talking extraordinarily broadly here, seem to want to excuse and defend men for committing sexual violence where there is sometimes a tendency on the left to say that's it all over. If you commit a sexual crime, you're done. We don't want you in society anymore ever again. And, and that dynamic, I think, kind of gets wrestled with in this film. In a way, I'm still hmm. wrestling with myself. I've I, spoken too long. I
1: think the structure of this film is really crucial. I think that you raise really interesting points. Um, and I think that if we just say, okay, they just happen to come in contact with each other and the film is him defending his actions, that's a bit shit. Yes. What that ignores, though, is that she tracks him down. The film begins, she goes out of her way. She chooses to hear him speak. She's the one with agency at the start of this film. She's traumatised and I think the film does a really, really great job of depicting the range of her trauma. Yeah, it does. In the the irrationality of her trauma and the passion of her trauma and all of those things add to the depth of her trauma. She doesn't go through the motions of being a quote-unquote abuse victim. Her reactions are, are contradictory. Um, she's a damaged woman, but she's not playing this two-dimensional damaged woman.
2: No, I think um, she's yeah.
1: She she really and and she's she's the one that tracks him down to hear what it is that she has he has to say, and it's very made very clear for me structurally that she needs that for her own recovery. So the film is very much his narrative, his defence of his actions is framed through her need to address him, and I think that that's really important um, mm-hmm. because she's the one for a story that's framed by her loss of control and the abuse of her as a child and as an adult, you know, this continuing abuse, she she chooses to make it stop by confronting him and hearing what he has to say. And I think that that issue of confrontation driven by her is absolutely central to getting your head around the ethics. And I think that I do really pack a bong for this film for not not reducing it to a melodrama. Mm. And I think that that's... And I've seen so many films that do it. This The film, they're not really points... They're not really obvious points of comparison, but I thought a lot of hard candy when I was watching this. The old, is it 2008? Ellen Page, one of her first films.
2: Maybe even earlier.
1: Could even be. Um, And it's, um, I mean, and they're not really similar films, but we have a young woman, um, a a teenage girl who goes to the house of a a photographer that she meets online. Um, I don't think there's spoilers for a film that's this old, but, yeah, she basically is sort of trying to track down one of her friends, um, and she's led to this man that she believes is um, a pedophile. And the whole film is the dynamic between them and the revelation of her not being the innocent figure that she that we believe she is and that the photographer, the, the character, believe she is. That film is a really interesting premise that absolutely collapses by really banal morality. It just turns it into good guys and bad guys and there's no in-between. There's no... Um, there's no – it doesn't really say anything is the bottom line. Sure. Um, there's no – it doesn't address trauma. It doesn't, it doesn't address um, agency. I mean, it, you know, it's not about the victim confronting the assailant. It's about her friend. You know, it, it kind of transfers that. And I think that that film could have – Hard Candy could have been really interesting and took a lot of really easy ways out to avoid a lot of the questions that I think Una does address. Mm. Um, and Una doesn't have the kind of – the spectacle that Hard Candy is quite famous for um, but I think that it's a, just a much, much smarter, much more grown-up film because it doesn't have those answers. Um, mm-hmm. It does make us question her behaviour. It makes us question the, the behaviour, the contradictory, irrational behaviour of a woman who suffered really decades-long trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it puts us in a position where we want to understand him. And I find that deeply unsettling because it does go against my my ethics. It's yeah. like, no, he is just an <laughs> asshole. Um, And I I do, I, I think this is a really interesting film. I do think formally it's sort of clunky, um, in that, I mean, it's 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 polished, but I do feel that yeah, it definitely feels like it's made by a pl- you know somebody who's familiar with another form. Yeah. So I realise I'm hogging the mic. No, no, no. no, no I, I, I had um, my
0: turn. Yeah, I speak for ten minutes. Well, I think
2: I've <laughs> things to say now. No, I look. <laughs> um, I, I absolutely agree, and I think that Rooney manages to convey this complex character that you're talking about. There, she's got the sense of neediness and obsession and hurt, and uh, but also a bit of cunning that we see towards the end, which I really like. She has that sense of agency. She is this victim of this crime, but she, on one level, needs to believe that she isn't. I mean. She really wants to walk away from this going, actually, no, it wasn't a crime. Actually, if this was OK. And I, loved, I actually like that the film allows us to toy with that. And I, I do think it's important that he is not presented as an out-and-out villain. And you get the sense that ordinary people can do this, that this ordinary man, and he, you know, Ben Mendelsohn is very good at being an ordinary man. These ordinary men are capable of these horrible acts and capable of this sort of justification going, oh, no, this is special. You know, this, this, this particular a, yeah. relationship hmm. is special. Obviously, if anyone else did this, it would be terrible. And I feel there's enough of a payoff at the end. It's not, um, it's fairly overt when when, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but when Rooney's character, Rooney's character follows uh, Ray home, there is enough of a signal there that actually, no, this isn't a, a unique event and that this man is deeply corrupt. And yes, this is a man who is a criminal and, and deserves uh, some kind of comeuppance. I feel that there is enough judgment there, but it's led us through the process of, um, of, of seeing Ray for what he is, I think. Uh, seeing uh, Being prepared to tolerate some sense of, decency or some some vulnerability on his part and still being able to come to the conclusion that no this man this man is a sex criminal.
1: It is that I'm I'm borrowing the phrase, but it's the banality of evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah like exactly. it's the classic in that he's not this mustache twirling villain. Mm. You know, he's um, and I think that the supporting cast in this film are really important as well. Riz Am- Ahmed. Yes. Um, yeah, really and I wanted more
2: of him. Though. Yes, he's an yeah. actor I like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. interesting
1: character that he mm. plays. It's, a, it's a, um, a supporting role, but I think that his character plays a really important part in providing a character that has is not immersed in the these really strongly subjective positions as the two main protagonists. Mm. So we have somebody on the outside trying to make sense of these very odd behaviours who doesn't know the story trying to make sense of it and he can't and I think that that's a really important thing to acknowledge from within the world of the film.
2: That's true, yes. He's the only normal normal person. He's the only person who's unaffected by the, this crime and, and I suppose through him we get to see the damage that it's done to both of the characters.
0: Yes, because he interacts quite heavily with both characters. Yeah, yeah. He's
1: very much... He, he pays witness. I yeah. think that, that his, his character is really important in that he... And, and so again, not giving away the ending, but I think that this idea of paying witness... Mm. Um, and, again, that I think that really feeds into the mission of her, her desire to seek... Ag- you know, her desire for agency, her desire to confront um, the man that had caused her such mm. such trauma,
0: and just to build on some of what you both are saying, and I think I'm coming around to this film. <laughs> the more I talk about it, it's, it's happening. It's
1: a really hard film. Yeah, like, look, it's it a is. really and, difficult
0: and movie. It, well, yeah, like I said, it, it did perturb me when it finished when I watched it. But I actually did read an article recently on the behaviour of of, of paedophiles, and and part and what this article is saying is there's a lot of people with these urges who know it's wrong to act on them, but they will then make an excuse. Mm. They, they will have a moment where they will say. She's flirting with me, or or we are in love, and Mm -hmm. and that they actually do know that this is incredibly damaging, and and um, and I don't want to say evil because that's too much of an abstract idea. Goes into
1: that melodrama, yeah. Yeah.
0: But but they act on that, and I think that's what we see articulated very impressively in this film. A man who has justified his behaviour, and he's trying to get her to go along with it as well, and And she kind of is tempted to go along with mm -hmm. it. It is interesting because it's it's kind of in her
1: best. You know, it makes it easier for her to. Believe him that yeah, they did have yeah. this big romance, and you Absolutely. can see her really, really wrestling with that. And I think some of the, the great moments of tension in this film come from that, come from you just. And as I said, she's not certainly not one of my favorite actors, but you can really see the machine in her brain just also- trying to like decide whether she should go with this or not
2: i think also it does implicate the audience a bit there because you're wanting a happy ending for this Mm. character and you and he's vulnerable enough to go okay maybe we can make an exemption in this case and i guess that's the dangerous ground that that thomas was talking about but i I found that quite powerful and this is
1: i think what's so important about having a performer of mendelssohn's caliber Mm. um in that he doesn't just try to convince her he tries to convince us Mm. and we find ourselves falling for it Um, absolutely Go Mendo.
0: <laughs> We've been talking about Una. Um, it sounds like it's one that we are recommending everybody should check out. Three, triple R. You're listening to Plato's Cave. Now, as Sophia Coppola's adaptation of The Beguiled is due to be released in Australia in a few weeks, we thought we would take a look at the original 1971 version. Both films are adapted from Thomas P. Cullenan's 1966 novel A Painted Devil. The 1971 version was the third film that director Don Siegel made with Clint Eastwood in the starring role, with their fourth collaboration being Dirty Harry later in that same year. The Beguiled is set in Mississippi in 1863 during the American Civil War, with Eastwood playing an injured Union soldier who finds sanctuary in an all-girls boarding school that is sympathetic to the Confederates. As he recovers his strength, it becomes uncertain whether he's patient or prisoner. It's the other way around, isn't it? Did I
2: get the... He's a Confederate soldier who's
0: uh, not... No, no, he's a the Union. There? He's in the South. Yeah so is so the
2: confederates <laughs> is this <were> <laughs> important to the discussion yes oh, right. <laughs> the, the, the,
0: the confederates <laughs> were the south or the rebels and the union were the north so he was he was behind <laughs> enemy lines right and is angie dickinson in this as well <laughs> 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 Had either of you seen this film before now? Many no.
1: times. Oh really? Many because times. This was
0: this the first it's one of oh, these lovely. I, I love Don Siegel films. I love Don
1: I'm one of the very few people that really likes Don Siegel. Not a big fan of Clint Eastwood. There's Ace. not many of us.
0: See, I love them both. Um, especially early Clint Eastwood.
1: Oh Siegel's just Great. I mean, his early stuff. I guess his big, big, big earlier film is the um, Invasion, invasion of, the of the Body Snatchers. Body snatchers. Yep. He did a great film noir quite early on, called The Big steel in 1949. But I love his later stuff after Eastwood. He did these amazing. He did a film in 77, I think, called Telephone with Charles Bronson, my beloved Charles Bronson, and The Black Windmill with Michael Caine um, was well, another late one. These are. He's just a
0: He kind of meshes. He's kind of he began in old school Hollywood, but and then he kind of, as his career progressed and things changed around him, he just kind of became this weird mashup of an exploitation big director with an art house director. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's how you summarise the beguiled. It's an exploitation art film. Yeah.
1: Well, Joanne Harris um, is one of my favourite characters in this film. She plays the young girl whose name I've gone blank on. there.
2: Edwina, uh, the very young
1: one, Carol, the twelve year old, the the twelve year old, the saucy
2: Carol. Carol, Yes.
1: not the little little girl. yeah. No. The the saucy the saucy team. The hussy, um, and she's she's got real exploitation stripes. She's um, not been in many films, but she was in a f- um, a rape revenge film called Act of Vengeance from 1974, also known as Rape Squad. That God. our our colleague um, Dr. Zach Hepburn and myself did a commentary on last year for the x films dvd release
2: of course she did
1: um she's she's like a proper grindhouse queen like proper grindhouse she's great in this she's really good in this yeah. she's dirty she's she just is, is the right balance of and beauty. then you've got geraldine
2: <laughs>
0: page who i believe had this very acclaimed theatrical background beforehand you
1: can really playing feel playing that head, head too head she mistress. has that real grand dame kind of presence mm. i love this film i just i i I honestly can't imagine what Sophia Coppola can do to this film. Really? Well, yeah, so I can see I that. I mean, I,
2: I really love this film too, but you um, know, it's this wonderful 70s melodrama complete with, with incest, which seemed to be a feature at the time. Of, of many Australian films too, now I think about it. Um, but there was this the, the gender politics is such that it's just crying out to be seen from a different perspective, seen from the female perspective. And although you. Do you think you...
1: this is seen from the male perspective? I feel I, it. I think I he's so is. ambivalent. I, I just think the. the, the East, Eastwood character is so ambivalent.
2: Yeah, I, I do like the fact that it is ambivalent. There is a sense of um, uh, we're not quite rooting for him. But No, I think he's not the nicest no. character. Are you
1: sure that's the phrase you want to use?
2: <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
1: are you rooting yes, for Eastwood? That's then? right.
0: Where I, mean, I remember it. I think seminary. his first line of dialogue is, yeah, how old are you?
2: Old enough to be kissed. Old enough to be kissed. This twelve-year-old girl, yeah. that's right, who looks rightly terrified as he lurches into locked lips. So yeah. the
0: film establishes it's going to be weird terrain, uncomfortable
2: I guess terrain. I was that- seeing it from the seventies perspective of going, is that okay? <laughs> That is thing. that all right in the 70s?
1: Is <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, they, there's that wonderful unreliable <laughs> narrated thing where we see he, he will be telling a story, but then we have flashbacks to those stories and the opposite is happening.
2: Well, there is, but so then going, but you go... Do you admire pretty... him for that, though? You no, go, he's a bit of a... a cad, but it's Clint...
1: I and think he's a bit of a scumbag in it. I think he's
2: a massive scumbag, and
0: yeah. yeah. this film is kind of before Clint Eastwood was a really. That's true. Yeah, it was. That's true. It, it
1: reminds me a little before bit before
0: the of, persona was really yeah. in stone. What which, mm. which would do with his next film, Dirty mm. Harry? But, I was thinking um, a lot yeah.
1: of um, things like High Plains Drifter. Mm. You know, this sort of really right dirty Clint. Yeah. You know? and,
0: and emasculated cleans. I mean, yeah. he, he doesn't, apart from the flashbacks, he doesn't get to fire a gun. He, mm. You know, there's, there's some very heavy Freudian stuff that goes on
2: in this film. I mean, and, and, I
1: love the title, The Beguiled. It's mm. like, yeah. who does it refer to? Yeah. You
2: know, is
1: it the women or is it him?
2: I guess I just felt that the, the sexual archetypes were a bit limited. There's still a bit of a judgement attached to it. There's Carol, who's described as the hussy. You know, she's the teenager with the sexual confidence. There's Edwina, who's described as the sleeping beauty in the castle waiting to be kissed. There's the corrupt older, you know. Um, I forget what the term is now for a, an older woman. Spinster. No, that's not quite the one oh. I was thinking of. Jeez, uh, Thomas,
1: settle down. I think <laughs> cougar
2: was possibly the term I'm thinking of. No. Uh, <laughs> and I think also the female, the sense of repressed sexuality is um, is I, um, is is kind of played for laughs in some. In some way, it's which is is while well, it's fun, it did remind me slightly of, you know, Michael Palin's Virginal Galahad being locked in a uh, locked in a castle of libidinous young women. I mean, there is this sense of male fantasy to this going. Oh yeah, it'd be terrible to be kept prisoner, surrounded by these sexually repressed teenage girls. You know, it played a little <laughs> clo- too close to um, to playing up to that fantasy. I guess so. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how yeah, that's, i that's I'm kind of the opposite. because no, to I'm me with Mike. It, I totally is male anxiety and is. fantasy. Yes, it, but it totally yeah. usurps. Yeah. That.
1: That yeah. in that the film starts off as a you know I mean it starts off with the, with the women in control and he comes in and he's the fly in the ointment yeah um in, you know and, and certain desires are um are, are, he, you know he triggers off a kind of reaction in in the women that um breaks down their sense of community their kind of functional female community yeah um and there's only one way to fix it well I, and I, like I just I mean I just think that. I, I really love this film. I, I just I, I worry when people try to fix, you know, the, yeah. fix the gender politics. It's like I, I think uh, what,
0: from what I've heard, I don't think that's what's happening in the Coppola film. I'm not a big film. Coppola
1: fan. Yeah. I have to say, and I have the the, the things that Coppola, I that is. yes, yeah. the things that I have heard about this film is that the gender politics is actually kind of simplistic. Um, about her about her remake and okay. it's like I just, I don't know whether we need a Spice Girls girl power version of the Beguiled Like let's not
0: yeah, we need to wait till we see well, it I think we, the problem
1: with it is that it yeah. implies that there's something not, and, and this is one of the um one of my bugbears with slasher film you know, with a lot of stuff, the kind of so, sort of pomo stuff in the 90s was like oh, slasher's broken so let's fix it it's like, mm. look, it's only broken if you're looking at it in a really simplistic way I think um, if you're, you know, I think the beguiled. I think the original beguiled. There's a huge amount going on. Mm. So um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a film that needs fixing, and I don't think that films necessarily have to be either a progressive or b regressive. I think that you can have tensions of both. Uh, and the most important, most interesting <laughs> films for me are the ones that that oh, do absolutely.
2: that. Oh, th- absolutely. The idea of judging a film by its moral yeah. or ideological hygiene is, you know, it seems it's
1: bizarre. very in vogue at the moment. Oh, god, it it it's yeah. excruciating,
0: isn't it? Yeah. No, but I mean, I have heard Coppola speak about this film, and I think she saw it, and it just triggered something. And mm. and she, you know. Having seen that now and thought about her debut film The Virgin Suicides her mm. doing a remake of this just makes 100% sense 100% yeah, sense to me and she's kind of said it just gave she just wanted to tell this story again and she went back to the source material which apparently is all written from the points of view of the different women in the, in I read that. the story you,
1: you get that in the film with the, with the with voiceovers the, the voice where which... you get a lot of internal dialogue yeah um...
0: which is a little clunky yeah, I'm going to suggest oh, it's,
2: it's, dated.
1: It's, dated. It's, dated, it's
2: dated but I it? love yeah. it it was also like he was kind of being haunted by these, these, you know, these, again, these, these, uh, libidinous young women who are—it's almost like they have some kind of weird telepathy going on there. I think, but I know, I, I look, I really enjoyed this film. And I love I think it. I do I like think the ambience. Beautiful. It's so this beautiful like, ethereal yeah, yeah.
1: cinematography and music. Lela Schifrin, I think.
2: But uh, I, at the same time, there's this sense that you know many men would give an arm or a like, leg.
1: To hey. be in his position.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Nicely wrapped up, Mike. You've been
0: listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with Alexandra Helen-Nicholas and Mike Bartlett here on Plato's Cave. We've been discussing a quiet passionate that is on limited release courtesy of Palace Films. Una is on limited release courtesy of Man Entertainment and the 1971 version of The Beguiled is available through video-on-demand services courtesy of Universal Pictures. I forgot to mention the podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. Thank you kindly, Faith. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want
1: to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.